Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com. to the Louisville Combat Academy Roadcaster line, where we are now joined by both Nick and Mike Paul. They're brothers who host a podcast, a uh, libertarian-themed podcast. They're both MMA fans. One of them actually trains jiu-jitsu also, so a lot of crossover appeal between the Kelly Patrick Show and Paul's to the Wall podcast. Before we jump into a little bit of backstory for the Paul brothers, I was going to do a brief Summary, uh, I was raised by a conservative father who voted Republican, and therefore by default, most of my life, or all of my voting life, I, I voted Republican. The coronavirus radicalized me, and I have turned to the Libertarian Party. And over the past 18 months, I have become increasingly more and more deep into all of this. So if it's all right, Nick, and Mike, if you guys could do a little bit of an introduction, who are you? Uh, what was your what's your backstory, I guess, politically? And also, you know, if you want to touch a little bit on your podcast and maybe uh, jujitsu or MMA journey. Also, where are you guys physically? Where you guys live? Where you're located at? So we're out in Illinois, and Mike and I live about a, a half hour apart. We're we're in northern Illinois. Uh, thank God, not Chicago, uh, <laughs> but out west. There's there's more to the state of Illinois than just Chicago. But um, so our, our backstory in a nutshell, Mike and I grew up in a, a you know, Irish, Italian, Catholic family, um, very conservative. Uh, so a lot of similarities to you. I thought the like going into this, I'm like, it's kind of funny that we're both uh, grappler libertarian podcasters with two first names. So we have that in common. And also like you grew up conservative. And for me, and I know Mike's story is similar. I'll let him tell it for himself. But uh, you know, growing up conservative, I was a, a senior in high school when Ron Paul's 2012 campaign was happening. And I'm like, hey, this guy's got the same last name as me. He sounds he talks like beyond just a normal politician. He sounds like he's just a guy talking and telling the truth. But I just couldn't get with him on foreign policy. So it, it was like this thing where, you know, I, I couldn't take the whole red pill. I was like still indoctrinated into this way of thinking that the U.S. has to be the the uh, police of the world. And, you know, if we pull out of all these countries that the rest of the world is just going to steamroll us. And it wasn't until a couple of years later that that message started getting through to me. And then, you know, in 2016, I find Dave Smith of part of the problem. And then after that, I find Scott Horton and then the rest is history. So that's uh, that's my, you know, brief political history. 
Yeah. So we're very similar. Um, Nick and I, like he said, grew up in a, you know, conservative Christian household. Our, our dad was a small business owner, still is. And he always kind of had like a, uh, you know, a distaste for, for local, like authoritative little local tyrants that would, you know, make him do building permits and codes and all that kind of stuff, which I didn't really understand when I was a kid. It frustrated him. Sometimes he would just not buy a building permit for a little, putting a window in his house just out of pride sometimes, you know, because he thought it was just extortion. And um, once I was a little older, I actually started a business with my dad. We did a collector car auction and we had about 140 muscle cars come to the event and we were trying to grow it. In the first year, I put a banner and a, it was at a sports complex off of a main road where we were renting for the event. And we got a banner that I spent like $500 having made, you know, telling the date of the event, trying to promote it. And next to my sign is a bunch of Reebok and Wilson and all these soccer signs on the fence. There's probably two dozen signs. I get a call from the, uh, the county that we were hosting the event in saying I had to take down the sign because it could cause an accident. It was an obstruction. And we went there and common sense could tell anybody that there's no danger of this. It's not blocking anything. So I, I kind of played victim on the phone to the guy. I was like, hey, listen, man, this is our first year doing it. We're taking a giant risk. I spent a lot of money on that sign. If this event takes off and we build this business, we're going to bring a lot of people to this city every single year to come to this. Um, so we'd really appreciate if you give us a little leeway. And he eventually told me we could leave it up if I gave him 250 bucks. So it went from causing accidents to... I had to pay him and it could stay. So I, I, that's when I, it clicked with me. I was like, oh, you're not a public servant. You're an extortionist and I'm doing business on your turf. That's all this is. So I kind of started to get a little bit of that same type distaste for, uh, you know, kind of the, the public sector being a leech on the private sector. And then after that kind of fell away, I got a, took a job where I drive a thousand miles a week now. I've been doing that for five years. And all I do is listen to podcasts and Nick eventually turned me on to Dave Smith, Jason Stapleton, Tom Woods. And now I have thousands of hours of all those guys talking in my head. And it led to us doing our own show. And we've been fortunate enough to talk with many of the people we listen to and, and kind of enter ourselves into this world. I love it. So would it be safe to say within the Libertarian Party, and correct me if I'm wrong, but a lot of people would associate both Tom Woods and Dave Smith with the Mises Caucus and uh, a, a description of those guys would be, if anything, if they had to choose between the Republican and the Democrat Party, which one is the lesser of two evils, which, of course, we don't have to choose. We have the Libertarian Party. But if you had to, gun to your head, you'd say, I guess the Republicans are maybe a little bit better. Do you guys both agree with that? 100%. Yes. And, and yeah. the reason being, I think, <clears throat> you know, from like, let's say five years ago up until COVID started last March, I would have said like, well, no, libertarians were, were kind of our own thing, like, right? Like there's left, right, and libertarian. And then there was a huge reality check when COVID happened last year. And that is that the right, let's just say Trump supporters, you didn't have to worry about them calling the cops on you for having a gathering, right? Like, so last, uh, last April and May, my friends and I that I train with would have a little uh, jujitsu speakeasy where we'd have... Kind of we'd have to park down. Nick, I, I, I apologize. I, I had Good trouble there. hearing you there for just a moment. Can you guys hear me? Yeah. Nick had some lag. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I think I had a little lag, but we can, uh, we can edit that, but, um, okay. You can edit it out. So awesome. So, so you said you had, you and your buddies had a, a little speakeasy, which I fucking love. I've, 
participated in Mayo's yeah. uh, throughout anyways. I mean, so you had a speakeasy for your jujitsu yeah. training. Yeah. So, so we were having to put curtains up in the window. We'd park down the street and, you know, we weren't worried about Trump supporters calling the Gestapo on us. We were worried about, you know, the people, the double maskers, uh, Karens of the world that would send the health department or the local police in to shut it down. And then we have to worry about the owner of our gym having his licenses revoked or, or hit with fines or whatever in a time where business is already shaky because of all the shutdowns. So I think this last year has really highlighted that yes, libertarians do in fact have more natural allies with the right than they do with the left. That's my, my personal opinion. Mike, it sounds like you you're in agreement with your brother on that. Yeah, pretty much. I mean, a lot of the the issues overlap, especially kind of the the more like social uh, values. You know, the, you find the Christian conservative type people to be a lot more uh, conservative. I'm a big family guy myself. I got four kids, wife. I live a very traditional lifestyle, so I definitely on just a personal basis, I I can relate to those people a lot more. Along with the fact, like when Nick said that. They they don't want to use men with guns to force their ideas on my way of life. So it's uh they're definitely more uh more easy to get along with. Okay, uh, not only are both of your last names Paul, but you mentioned Ron Paul uh, brought you in. I think he's Nick during the 2012 presidential campaign campaign for Ron Paul. He brought you in. Now this brings up an interesting conversation. He brought you in while he was running as Republican, okay? So I guess a, a common debate among libertarian circles is, and I, maybe will always be, um, why, you know, why not try to make the, the, the right in our country, the Republican Party, more liberty-oriented? My story would be, I voted for Trump in 2016. He had a lot of good rhetoric. To be honest, I bought into some of it. He was calling a bunch of shit out. You know, he was... Saying that he wasn't going to make the government larger, and turns out he, you know, he, he made it larger than any president prior by a long shot. So he completely, for the stuff I care about most, he, I guess he lied. He just straight, bold-faced lied. So for me, there's no one hell I will ever vote Republican again. What do you guys think? Are you tinkering libertarian? Uh, maybe in the right situation you'd vote Republican, but... Uh, you know, it does it depend. What are your thoughts on that for both of you? Yeah, I would. I, I would definitely. It depends on the candidate. Um, I know if you're paying attention to the kind of civil war debate going on, even within the the Mises crowd right now, uh, we have like Tho Bishop of the Mises Institute that has basically in Florida, he's basically taken over his local Republican Party. Give him a second. He's through. And then there's the other approach with the LPMs. Oh, shoot. Nick, real, we good real quick, now? I think we couldn't hear you there for a second. You said Tho Bishop has taken over his local Republican Party. So I think that's about where we cut off. So if you want to repeat that, maybe we could edit it back in. Sure, sure. So the the debate right now, even within the Mises crowd, uh, we have like the Tho Bishop of the Mises Institute. We, his strategy is to take over local GOP parties and get your policies through that way. And then there's the LPMC, the Libertarian Party Mises Caucus, 
that is all about like this big PR campaign and also taking over local politics. And I think that's a theme that everybody can agree on that you could do the most change locally where you're not going up against the entire machine. And uh, I'm personally, I, I think that the Mises caucus is great for red pilling as many people as possible. If they have, especially if like Dave Smith runs for president and he's able to get in front of millions of people and really change hearts and minds, that's great. Um, as far as getting actual policies in real life through, I think the GOP might be the better vehicle for that because the reality is most people go to the voting box and they see an R and they've always been an R and they check that box. So if you know you have somebody who's really a libertarian but a Republican in name, similar to Ron Paul or Rand Paul or Thomas Massey, then you actually stand a chance at winning and getting your policies through. So I, I'm a fan of both. I, I love the LPMC. But I also think that the GOP strategy is a, a sound tactical strategy. Did you yeah. vote for the president in this most recent re- election? Who did you vote for, Nick? I did not vote. <laughs> Only because, okay. I mean, first of all, I mean, I'm in Illinois, so it, it makes zero difference. So, okay. um, I, and I was, I was not very happy with, uh, with the way Joe Jorgensen ran her campaign. I think she watered it down. She, she was good on you know most of the issues. But it's not really somebody that I would throw my support behind. Um, I think she was pandering to the left a little bit for my taste. So, uh, I mean, come 2024, though, I mean, I actually will get out there and either vote for Dave Smith or if we have somebody like Ron DeSantis even, which, of course, he's not perfect. But um, I think the day and age that we're living in, you know, beggars can't be choosers. Yeah, I I you would vote for DeSantis. Okay, gotcha. I did not vote in 16. However, in 20... Um, a week before the election, I wasn't going to vote either, but I went into my local public library and there was a display of new children's books front and center that were all left wing agenda, like, like blatant. Um, there was like this green new day about the green new deal. There was uh, something happened in our town, a story about racial injustice with two little kids, um, uncle Bobby's wedding with two gay dudes getting married and trying to, you know, and whatever, feel however you want to feel about those ways. I just, I think those topic should be discussed by the parents with the kids and not forced on a public education uh, system. So I kind of spoke my mind to the library and they basically told me there was no political agenda, which by the way, one of the books was rooted in justice, the Kamala Harris story the week before the election. And they told me there was no political bias here. Um, And it just pissed me off so royally that I, I voted for Trump just as a middle finger, even though like Nick said, we're in Illinois and it doesn't matter. It was just a, a reaction just because it's the only tool we have in the toolbox was Trump. That's fair. I, I you know, I understand it. my brother, my father, um, you know, a, a lot of the other, my uncles, you know, I got a lot of people that I talk to who would basically agree with either or what, what both you, Nick and you, Mike uh, said about that. So uh, I guess the moral of the story is however we can get Liberty in freedom, in, in smaller government, uh, implemented in the future, would be voting for. Are you guys a fan of Rand Paul? Oh yeah, big time. I'm a big fan of what he's been doing all throughout COVID. He's been phenomenal. One of the one of the best guys we got. I'm really grateful he exists. Okay, I love it. Absolutely love it. Um, of course. So if 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 Dave Smith run, I know that all I'm talking about is the presidential election and you could argue many argue 
that local elections are just or maybe more important in the long run. But if Dave Smith runs in 2024, I assume he'll get support for their review. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I, I think it, like, OK, let's say my dream scenario or maybe this isn't a dream. I haven't even grappled with this idea yet. But if Dave Smith is the LP candidate and Ron DeSantis is the GOP candidate, Obviously, Dave Smith doesn't stand a chance at winning, but I see huge value in him, like we talked about, changing hearts and minds and getting on you know, cable news. And uh, I think that would be great, but you really don't want to split the vote. If, we're, if, we're, if the choices are Ron DeSantis, Dave Smith, and Kamala Harris, because it won't be Biden, obviously, at least in my opinion, um, then it's like you, you don't want to split that vote away from DeSantis or somebody like him that actually stands a chance at winning. If it's a run of the mill, you know, uh, John McCain establishment Republican, then yes, I'm going to go Dave Smith. Uh, but if it's somebody like DeSantis, who again is not perfect at all, he's not a libertarian, but he has been, he's been proven, uh, to not, you know, bend the knee to the left. And he actually counters like a lot of the COVID policies, these things that are, like the most extreme infringements on, on civil rights that we've seen in our lifetime. Um, I will take that guy over a perfect candidate that doesn't exist every time. So long as he stands a chance at winning. Yeah. And well, it's kind of like this. If I lived in a swing state, I would agree with what Nick said. But like I said, we live in Illinois. Our vote's not going to matter anyhow, but yeah, if it came down to a, a you know, Harris DeSantis or, or Dave Smith, and say Dave was pulling at four and a half or five percent, which would be huge for for you know libertarian uh, percentage, maybe larger than that. Um, it really wouldn't make a difference if we did. I'd probably vote for Dave just out of respect, um, since I'm in Illinois and it's not going to move the needle anyways. But if you're in a swing state, I could understand the argument of going for DeSantis because this could really change the outcome of the election if uh, your state goes the right way. It's funny because the Kelly Patrick Show podcast is a lot of dicking around and a lot of local MMA stuff. But then occasionally I have a what I would describe as a relatively serious episode, and this is somewhat serious. And my next question, pretty pretty fucking serious. So I assume you're both pro-life. Yes, sir. Mm-hmm. Okay, so that's Dave Smith's stance, Ron Paul stance, right? Right, right. Yeah. That's... Have you found abortion to be a controversial topic within the specifically within the Libertarian Party? Um, I mean, yeah, you, you definitely on issues like, uh, abortion and immigration, there's a split among libertarians. And I think that is, it's sort of the, you could say like left libertarian, right libertarian divide, but I I don't think that it's necessarily left, right. Um, I mean, within the community, but it's their apt descriptors, but, um, yeah, I mean, when it comes to that topic, I mean, I, I personally am pro-life, but it's not something that I like to argue with people about. For one, because it's very, very rare that you have a fruitful conversation. Usually it's just very uh, emotional and people just snipe at each other and then you get no, you don't cover any ground and it it just kind of fizzles out. Um, The other thing is, I mean, how many Republicans have we seen that run on a pro-life platform? And even when the Republicans control, you know, the House, the Senate and the presidency and they have a majority in the Supreme Court, no legislation actually gets Put through. I mean, I think that what we're going to see is the uh, the the continuation of the current paradigm. And to me, it's like I, I don't necessarily like. It's not something I care about uh, like passing legislation against. I think that what the pro life movement should be 
is a cultural thing. I think we should try to tell people like, Hey, here's why, if this happens to you, you should, you know, take the hand that you're dealt in life and make the most of it and try to actually influence people. Like I don't, if, if a girl wanted to get an abortion, um, more than anything, I don't want to throw her in jail. If she goes through with it, I want to try to talk to her about why she should reconsider this position. Yep. Yeah. It's, it's pretty close to where I stand with it. I'm with Nick. It's one of my least favorite topics to debate with people. I've, I've never successfully changed somebody's mind on the topic. Um, even though I'm pretty passionately pro-life, as I mentioned before, I have four kids and um, there's the greatest thing that ever happened to me. Um, and you know, I remember even Dave Smith used to, to be pro-choice. Um, not, not really radically, but I remember his like second appearance on Joe Rogan. When I first started listening to him, he told Rogan, he's gotten more pro-choice because he, um, he didn't want the state to have the authority to investigate every miscarriage as a murder investigation, which I was like, damn, that's a really good point. I've never thought of. So I, I kind of respected it, you know, I, I disagreed with it. But then his his daughter was born and he immediately became pro-life. So it was kind of interesting to watch the transition. I kind of felt the same way when my, my kids were born. I, I grew up Catholic being told pro-life was right. But then once I had my own kids, it was like, whoa, this is truly like beyond our comprehension miracle. This is a human being, you know, and uh, it, it's something that I feel very strongly about. Um, even like our parents go to pro-life rallies for the Catholic Church and everything. They're, they're very into it. But um, it, I can't more or less came to that position through my own anecdotal life experience. Okay. And it's funny, whatever's going on in my brain related to the libertarian party turns into the direction of my questions. Um, you guys referenced immigration is somewhat uh, divisive topic within the libertarian party on occasion. Uh, what are your takes on immigration? So, I mean, this is something that I've, uh, I, I'm honestly torn on. I've been torn on for about the last five years where, you know, you look at our, our current system and it's in a lot of ways, it's kind of similar to our healthcare situation where it's like, okay, well, listen, I'm not defending the current situation. It's, it's, you know, wrought with just fraud and abuse and all of these things. But when it comes to immigration, it's like, I don't want to take, I mean, as a, a libertarian, somebody who claims to support individual rights, if there's some guy in Mexico that he's from a town where they're living in abject poverty and it's run by the cartel and they're living in fear every day. And this guy just wants to come to America and buy a house and make an uh, honest living. I don't want to stop that guy. Like that guy to me, somebody who's willing to come here with just the clothes on their backs and try to build a life. I think that's a beautiful thing. And I think that's what America's built on. It's kind of like this, uh, you know, you self-sustain yourself and you build a life for yourself. And that's the story of all of our ancestors. Uh, however, that's not exactly who's coming over most of the time. It's like, I also don't think you can have just like unchecked immigration, uh, especially with our current welfare state where these people are coming in and they're taking from the pool of resources, but not really contributing. So I think that's a problem. And when you look at people go like, oh, well, you know, America is a nation of immigrants. But when you look at like the Ellis Island, uh, early 20th century, late 19th century approach, it was, I, I forgot the stat, but it's something like half of all the people that came over went back because they just, they couldn't make it. So when people came over, it's like, no, you better assimilate and, and, you know, pull your own weight and then you can build a life in America. And I think right now with the sort of safety net we have, 
it's not incentivizing people to uh, build that kind of life. It's incentivizing much more of a um, tragedy of the common situation where you have all these people coming in, they're taking benefits, they're not exactly getting work, not all the time. And, you know, you also have to be careful of like the, the smugglers coming in, like all of the cartels and everything. And uh, it's, it's just a mess. So I think my ideal pro uh, proposal would be the legal process needs to be streamlined where, okay, we have to have some sort of background check. And, you know, what's funny is my first jujitsu instructor, uh, well, I guess he's my second instructor came over here from Brazil, um, knowing zero English. He came over in Northern Illinois in February, didn't own a winter jacket. And, uh, you know, he, he worked on a visa and we, watched him go through the immigration process for about three years with the owner of my gym, like helping out and, and funding all of these legal things. And he spent something like in the neighborhood of $20,000 in just legal fees for lawyers. And he still wasn't a citizen. And this guy, he had a, a handwritten letter uh, of recommendation from Hoyler Gracie. And uh, you know, that wasn't good enough. Like for the, it's so bureaucratic, the immigration um, you know, agencies that, it costs a ton of money. It takes many years if you want to become a citizen. And I don't think that's right. I think, again, if you know the language, you want to come here and work and you have a clean background, then bring those people in. That's great. That's that's my ideal solution. Yeah. Okay. I'm, I'm... Uh, real, real, real quick. Sorry. Before Mike, before we jump to your thoughts on immigration, Nick, could you give a quick shout out to your jujitsu gym? How long you've been training? Uh, what are you yeah, no, and I, I hope we get uh, more into jujitsu later in the podcast too. But my gym is no joke MMA or uh, no joke BJJ. It's a it's an MMA gym with a strong jujitsu program inside of it. Um, so yeah, my no joke uh, family, Rich Whitenack, uh, who's actually one of our first guests on the podcast. Um, shout out to him, and uh, you know, too many training partners to to name, but uh, yeah, they really are my second family. Love it. We got to get to that in more detail later. But for now, Mike, your thoughts on immigration? Yeah, I'll keep, I'll keep it short because a lot of it echoes what Nick said. But yeah, I think a lot of it has to do with the same people who are on the DMV are, are processing these things. You know how that how that works, and and then just the all the uh, the social incentives with the the welfare and free healthcare and all the uh, kind of radical agendas the left wants to push. It's not helping. You're 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 incentivizing people to come here. You're, you're, if you subsidize it, you're gonna get more of it. So I think a lot of that needs to be taken away, like everything else, just less government's the answer. Um, but like Nick said, it's so complicated, this issue. It, it's also kind of like abortion. I think I, those are my two least things to fight people <laughs> on is abortion and yeah. immigration. Okay, well, you, you, I think you brought up a very Ron Paul-esque type of take on immigration. Mike, you said the handouts and the, the, the yeah. agendas that the left pushes a lot is, you know, uh, food stamps and, and welfare and health, free health insurance and everything's on us and come on in, you know, as much as you want. So, I mean, if, uh, uh, you know, uh, Ron Paul, I've heard Larry Sharp articulate this really well in the past, is if you were to actually implement a small government solution that would maybe have relatively free open borders relatively, you know, uh, consistent with what you said, Nick, trying to make sure we're not taking in problematic type people, preferably that could speak the language, things like that, that we should have a pretty open policy, but we can't just, they got to come to work. I mean, there's no way around that. They got to come in. They got to be working. 
Yeah. And, you know, when I, I should uh, clarify, when I said, you know, speak the language, that's not like, you know, the kind of like, they better come to my country and speak American. Like, that's not what I mean. I mean that if it's a, a merit based system, very meritocratic, that the people that are going to make it are going to learn to speak English. You know, I'm not saying that like they should take a test, an English test or whatever. It's just that if there is no social safety net and you have to come here and provide for yourself, um, which again, doesn't even mean that, that they can't get any support. Like I just, I mean, not government funded. I think that one of the huge tragedies of the last hundred years of American history is this belief that, I mean, it's, it's, the Overton window is so small here where people think that social safety nets mean it has to be government funded. And before we had the new deal with social security and the great society of the 1960s, we had things like churches and local communities where if somebody fell on hard times, their community rallied around them and they helped that person out. And what that did was it built a stronger sense of community, like that kind of social fabric. And it also weeded out people who were abusing it. Like everybody knew that if, if a guy is just, you know, he's homeless and he's, he's, uh, you know, doing crime and whatnot. And he's an alcoholic. It's like, okay, well, we're not going to subsidize that guy, right? Like we want to see him get clean before we help him out. Then we'll help him get back on his feet. And I think that private organizations, like I said, churches and private charities are much better at discerning between, uh, people who legitimately need help and, you know, people who are abusing the system. Since I led the interview with both of your least favorite libertarian topics, <laughs> how about I ask each of you what's your favorite? What topic in the world of, of politics in 2021 is the most important to you? And I'm sure that maybe also carries over into your favorite. But what's the most important topic for you in a, a liberty movement in, in the United States in 2021? Want to take it first, Nick? Yeah, sure. I'll, I'll tell you. So I work in the wholesale plumbing industry. So we sell, um, you know, two plumbing companies, water heaters, copper, PVC, that kind of thing. And I work inside sales there. And over the last year, we've seen the Federal Reserve go berserk with their monetary policy. I mean, our national debt was like 20 trillion last February, and it's at 29 trillion now. You know, we've racked up more debt in 16 months than the previous like 15 years mm -hmm. combined. And it, like we're seeing, we're seeing the inflation come through. At first, it was just propping up things like asset prices, like housing, the stock market, the bond market. When you print all this money, it's going to push up prices somewhere. And I think that since the 2008 financial crisis, it went to propping up the housing market again. That's what absorbed all these new printed dollars and the stock market and all of these things that make people feel paper rich. But what happens when that money comes out of those things and it gets into the real economy, then you see inflation. You start to see people, you know, if you have 10% inflation, that's like somebody getting a 10% pay cut. And when it happens year over year where wages are flat, but prices are going up, people are by definition becoming poorer while our technology gets better. And it's, it's criminal that that's happened to people. And it's such a frog in a boiling pot situation where people don't recognize that. It's like, Hey, why, why is it that everything we have better technology, things are cheaper to produce and we're, we have all this amazing technology and we have flat screen TVs and Netflix and all these things. But for some reason, 50 years ago, you know, a single guy could have his wife stay at home and they could raise three kids without a problem on, you know, a high school diploma and just getting a job at a local factory. 
And now that way of life is gone while everything is becoming cheaper to produce. And we're, we're richer in terms of imported Chinese consumer goods, but we're poorer in that sense. And I think that that boiling frog in the pot uh, has reached a point where people are really starting to have some strife. I think that's why you saw Bernie Sanders have this movement in 2016 and 2020, where people know that something is wrong. They know that the system's rigged, but they don't know what it is. They attribute it to, well, the billionaires need to pay higher taxes when that's, that's really not at the root of this. There are people who capitalize on this insane system with, you know, cashing in on bubbles before they pop and then buying the assets after they crash and then riding it back up for sure. It's creating a giant wealth gap in this country and the middle class is getting hollowed out. But what's happened, I guess, to bring it back since COVID, we've had this insane monetary policy and we're seeing prices rise. I mean, look at like the price of copper, um, you know, the water heaters we sell, we had a permanent 10% increase in February, another 10% in April, another 10% in June, another setup to go another 10% in September permanently. And we're seeing the price of groceries go up. Like all of these things are starting to take effect. And I think that it's libertarians have a responsibility to be good on this issue. Cause we, if you study Austrian economics, it's like, Hey, this is our bread and butter. This is like at the core of everything is monetary policy and what Ron Paul talked about. And it's happening like right in front of people's faces. People will care about this issue when their dollar and their hour of work of labor is not getting them as much, uh, you know, material goods as it should. So to me, it's like when people, our customers would be like, man, these are like, you know, the price of PVC. Are you kidding? I'm like, Hey, you know, you print $15 trillion in a year. And then people are shocked when prices go up and they go, Oh yeah. I mean, no shit. So it's like people are ready to hear it when you don't have to read like human action by Mises to get this. It's like you print money and the economy doesn't grow and things become more expensive. And that's, that's been my number one thing I've been able to reach people with, I'd say in the last year. For sure. So since Nick took the economic stance, I'll go social. Um, my most important one for me is is the the kids and what's going on with the public education and the indoctrination, the critical race theory. Um, this is shit that I lose sleep over. Um, I'm, can I swear on here? I'm, I'm sorry. <laughs> um, yeah, but, you, uh, you can say whatever you want on this. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Sorry. I just I'm so used to our show. Um, but yeah, so the, the the attack on the kids is, is something that not enough people are talking about. And it's weird because even when you go in public, it's like you're afraid to ask other parents like, hey, are you creeped out the fact that they're teaching our kids to be racially divided? Like we can't bring this up because they might be on the other side of the fence. Um, but I think it's it's completely immoral. Um, and I mean, like I said, I lose sleep over it. It's, it's my most important thing in my life. I have one kid in school, three that are, are not quite in school yet. And I'm trying to figure out ways around. Um, we're already on one income with six people and trying to figure out how to homeschool. It's, we have twins. So it's, it's a lot on my wife to try to figure that out. Private school would be like 20 some thousand dollars a year plus driving them without school bus services. Um, and all the while I'm paying over $6,000 a year in property taxes for this institution to indoctrinate my children. And I don't have a say in it. I mean, I don't, if I go to private school, I don't get to have that money back. That's going to the public school. I have to pay both. It's 500 bucks a month for the public school. So I think it's, they have our kids in a part-time prison and they're indoctrinating them to become our enemies. And I think that's something we have to get in front of immediately. And, you know, that's where I'll compromise like the, you know, the, some of the libertarian stances to, to support Ron DeSantis when he bans critical race theory. 
It's like, that's, that's a good thing. Like you have to fight back in the, the same fight, the same method that they're using. Like if we stand there and use the non-aggression principle and be like, oh, that's authoritative. Well, then we're just going to sit here putting everything by the book while they're going out of bounds and doing, you know, like uh, <laughs> just uh, um, illegal procedures and the refs are all paid off and the announcers are paid off and the, the, the league is paid off. And we're just sitting here going, hey, hey whoa, whoa, you were, that was, uh, you know, you, you put your foot out of bounds before you caught the ball. Um, I think we got to start kind of pushing back the way DeSantis is, because if we don't, we're going to have a whole generation of a bunch of kids who hate each other over race and people who feel that the world's against them because of the color of their skin and ones that feel guilty because of the color of their skin. And I think that is a terrible message for children and, uh, and a future generation. Yeah, I'm with you on that, Mike, a hundred percent, both Nick, your, your points about the, uh, monetary policy and then Mike also. But to follow up with that, Mike, one of the scary things I've heard about lately is there has been some push to make private schools illegal. And that's like the uh, ultimate red flag for like, what the fuck's going on here type? Uh, I mean, what type of socialist takeover is this? But I, I mean, have you heard that where they're talking about maybe making private schools illegal? And even if you were to do homeschooling, you would still have to basically follow the curriculum that the government lays out. How horrible is that? <laughs> well, obviously, I think, you know, it, it's as horrible as horrible it can be. Um, and, yeah, I've, I've heard those kind of things push. And a lot of times it feels like they're just they're just putting the feelers out there to see how the reaction is or try to normalize it in the conversation. Um, and, I mean, if they try to do something like over that overnight, I feel like there would be a massive pushback. But this boiling frog in a pot thing they're doing, people are just kind of like, Oh, what's the big deal? They're just teaching them about slavery. Oh, what's the big deal? It's like, no, we we all went to public school. We already learned about slavery. This isn't a new thing, right? Like what person in this country didn't learn about slavery or Martin Luther King, Rosa Parks? Like all great things. I'm not trying to negate any of that. But they act like they're doing something new. But in reality, it's they're, they're teaching hatred, division, um, and they're going to create a problem that only the government can solve. And it's just going to be more power to them and more control. And yeah, I think there needs to be a massive pushback and and, and platforms like yours and ours and, and everyone else in this world, we, we all got to take a stance together on issues like that. And there's a lot of, there's a lot of parents who are in agreement with it that are afraid to speak up. And I think we got to stop making people so afraid to speak their minds when you see crazy ass shit happening in your town off of your tax dollars. I have three kids and I mean, I couldn't agree more. They're all in public schools, which, you know, I talk to them at home a lot. I mean, they, mm -hmm. they probably roll their eyes. They probably roll their eyes when they hear me, a 14 and 13 and 12 year old. So I'm uh, talking to them a lot about those types of things. But it, it's scary. It's a, it's a very scary topic. Nick, your thoughts on the school system in, in our country? Um, well, you know, this is funny. I don't think I've uh, announced this on the podcast, but my wife and I are actually expecting our first right now. So um, it's uh, awesome. it's something that congratulations. Yeah, thank you. Hell yeah. Thank um, but yeah, this is something that I've only recently been forced to consider and talk about. Not that I didn't care before. I think that things like critical race theory are poisonous. It's making our society race obsessed. It literally says that you need to look for racism in all aspects of life, which is nonsensical. Um, you know, if you just teach kids, one of the things Jeff Dice said that I really enjoyed was that, you know, we don't need political correctness. We need manners. Like we need a respectful society, like teach kids to just respect each other 
And then all those other things, racism, sexism, homophobia, that just doesn't happen because it's like, no, no, he's just a good person. Like you raise a, a young boy to just be respectful of the people they encounter in their lives. And they're not going to have any of those problems. And I think our society, it's not that we need more political correctness. We just need more, you know, personal respect. And, and that's something that's missing. So uh, in terms of the schools, um, I, yeah, I think what what's happening right now where all of these curriculums are being forced is tragic. And I, I hope, and I, I actually have a, a good feeling that it will be pushed back on. I think once people see what their, their kids are learning, uh, there's going to be massive local pushback. And uh, to me, that's encouraging. Okay. When Biden and Trump were de- having the presidential debate, the topic of critical race theory came up. And Trump, as he always does, he, you know, maybe he doesn't have the, the best argument canned and ready to go, but he does have a stance. And he said, oh, critical race theory, that's anti-American. And Biden, to his credit, I'd say it was intelligent of him, said – I don't see what the problem is with just treating people to be uh, uh, polite to each other and, and trying to be racially sensitive. I don't see mm-hmm. what the problem is. And I feel the majority of our country fucking heard that. And they were like, oh, that's what critical race theory is? Huh. Trump's yeah. maniac for, for being anti that. Uh, what's yep. the difference between just being polite and what is critical race theory? So yeah, that, that was kind of the ethos of Donald Trump where he wouldn't really do his homework, but he would just talk a big game. And whenever it came to specifics, he would kind of just go back to his rhetoric and not have anything to lean back on. But basically uh, critical race theory, which is part of the broader umbrella of critical theory says that any difference in outcomes is the result of oppression. So if, you know, if blacks and whites have different incomes, uh, if you know black people make less money than white people, it's the result of race systemic racism in the system somewhere, and that it can't be attributed to culture or anything else. That it is this systemic thing that's happening. So then there's you know critical gender theory and all of these other things. So it's inherently Marxist because you know the whole Marxist thing is that instead of you know class warfare, this is you know race warfare, and that the system is designed to benefit white people. Uh, at the cost of black people. So anytime there's an imbalance, different outcomes, it is the result of racism, which is simply not true. And uh, I mean, if you look at like Thomas Sowell, you know, half of his career has been just smashing this argument with a baseball bat. Um, when he, he talks about in his books, how like the the legitimacy rate in the black community before the implementation of the welfare state was actually higher than whites. It was lower crime, all of these things. And so to me, this speaks to a a cultural problem and specifically what's happened in inner cities. Right. I mean, that's, that's really what is where it's at. It's like, you know, any, like in my school district, like, you know, I'd have black friends that came from similar households that I did. And they were just like, you know, everybody else. It was, it was more of a, an income or a, a class thing, like middle class, um, you know, people in general will do well for themselves. If you come from a family with loving parents and uh, you, you know, you have opportunities in your life, you're going to do fine. I don't think that your race is going to be a hindrance, you know, with the, with the outcome differences we're seeing on paper, this is, we're seeing generational poverty in inner cities. And that's why we're having, uh, you know, these different outcomes. But if you're convinced, if you already, you start with your conclusion that this is the result of racism, then everything that comes from that core idea is going to be wrong. And the people that 
are pushing this are very passionate about that idea and not willing to entertain the idea that that's the wrong assumption to start with. Right. Real quick, Mike, before we jump into your, I'm sure you got more thoughts about that. There's also, you know, that thought of you said critical theory, which includes all sorts of different things, but critical race theory comes from, but intersectionality um, and all these different ways, basically to be divisive. One of the things I give the left credit for, whoever's coming up with this shit, whoever created Black Lives Matter was a fucking genius <laughs> to push mm -hmm. their agenda, to name it that, to name it Black Lives Matter, because if you're going to be against Black Lives Matter, what? Oh, that means you hate, you don't like black people. And then same goes for critical race theory. It's the same thing. Um, oh, you don't like that? Huh. You must want to be, you know, want to live in a society filled with racists. Mike's your, Mike, your thoughts on that? Yeah, no, it's like you said, it's marketing genius. And that, that's kind of just the inherent nature of the, the left. They're collectively minded and, and the right's a little more individualist. And, you know, a lot of people on the right are family people. They have careers. They're thinking about they're buying their lake house, whatever they want to do with their goals in life. And and, and the left is a lot of young college kids who have come out massively in debt and, and they're very mad at something and they, they know something's off and they, they turn their their turrets towards capitalism and and racism and all these other messages that these organizations are forming around to kind of form like a cancer. But I just don't have time for this argument that that we're a white supremacist nation or a white, like there's any sort of like white nationalism going on. Like I grew up, I was born in 1990. My favorite role model as a child was Walter Payton. Like I was a sports nut. My dad was a huge Gale Sayers fan from the bears. Like I listened to Jimi Hendrix. All my friends listened to hip hop music. They were all fans of big sports stars. Like all the white kids I knew looked up to successful black men. Like, and if you say a black racial slur, you get fired from your job. So I just don't think those are the earmarks of a white supremacist country. So th this whole thing that act like we're living in 1958 Alabama, I, I think is just complete nonsense. And the, and the fact that people don't point that out more often, I, it just really baffles me. But it, it's an emotional based argument. So it's effective. And they'll point to one or two things they'll be like, hey, look at this one black person that was wronged by a white cop. This is a sign that the whole culture is like this. And um, I forgot who was saying it, but there was a great... Um, a great line about when you think about all the, you know, the unarmed black men that have been shot by, by white police, you know, all their names because that's how few there are. Like if it was happening all the time, you wouldn't know all their names. If it's happening, if, if cops are just hunting black people in the street, that, that'd be a, a serious problem. And that would be something you wouldn't be able to keep track of. But the fact that there's like what a, a dozen in the last couple few years, which is a, a dozen too many, I'm not trying to defend it um, kind of points that it's not exactly a, an issue that, uh, a young black man needs to be scared walking around his neighborhood um, just because of the color of his skin. Yeah. The entire narrative is a, a very selective and I've had conversations with some friends over the past couple of years. When this topic comes up. They say, well, black people are killed a lot more in our country than white people are by cops. And I've said to him, Oh, have you reviewed, you know, have you actually reviewed the statistics? Normally the answer is no. Now, I mean, there is a uh, proportionately black African-Americans only make up 13 percent of the country and whites make up whatever it is, whatever the percentage is. And so proportionately, blacks are more likely statistically to be killed by cops. But there could be other factors that go into that. There's a lot of nuance that goes into different things. And, you know, maybe racism does to a, a, a relatively small degree exist. Maybe. And is it bad mm -hmm. where it does exist? Yeah. Uh, you know, I, I don't know many people that would argue against that. Um, 
but to just suggest the, the information that's brought up and, and uh, presented in, in favor of this type of argument is always very interesting. Um, yeah. Either of you I'm, have any additional additional thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, well, just like like you're saying, I I don't know that I've ever knowingly met a white supremacist in my lifetime. You know, it's like I've heard people talk, say off color jokes and whatever, um, but they're nonviolent people who never hurt another person. But this idea of this white supremacy, he's a white supremacist, name calling thing. It's like, I, I mean, I've met a lot of people. I don't think I've met one. I've never seen a Klansman. I've never seen a guy in a hood. I, I just I don't see it out there like Antifa or BLM. Yeah, somehow it's like this this fight where they're they're fighting back against this, you know, it's, and it all stems from like Charlottesville. It's like they point to that and it's like, okay, that was a bad thing that happened. But to act like that's like BLM didn't just burn down every major city in the country for the last year with with no opponent there, not even the police. Like, I think that's a little bit worse of a problem. A um, little bit of a both- stretch to, to blow that out of proportion when over the entire last summer, there was private businesses and business owners being physically attacked and there was murders and all sorts right. of violence occurred. Uh, and then the January 6th thing happened. Probably not a good idea, whoever did that, whatever the hell mm-hmm. went on there. But to blow that out of proportion and just to gloss over the entirety is what, of what has happened over the past year and a half is insane. Oh, Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, we could, we could probably talk about this for hours, but um, yeah, in general, I think we're, 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 we seem to be in agreement on this, um, that this obsession with race is, uh, is getting out of hand. And also, like you said, we do not live in a white supremacist culture. It's just nonsense. It's, it's such a, an absurd accusation to just loft around. Okay. Um, Nick, could you tell me a little bit about a little bit more about your jujitsu journey, please? Yeah. So, okay. I've been, uh, I, I think over the last couple of years, I've sort of psychoanalyzed myself and, uh, I grew up with three older brothers, right? I'm the youngest of four boys, meaning that growing up, I got manhandled quite easily and it kind of shaped my worldview that, Hey, I am uh, vulnerable and defenseless and I could get my ass kicked at any moment. Like I don't stand a chance against people. So from a young age, I, I really had a, uh, I was drawn to combat sports. I remember the first time I watched Rocky, I think I was 10 years old. And this idea was put in my head that you could actually train at a combat sport and you could become good at fighting. Like that was a, a new idea to me. And, you know, I know a lot of people have that story with like Bruce Lee for them, but for me, it was Rocky. That was the first one. And then, uh, my freshman year of high school. Um, and also one other thing I grew up, I went to Catholic school. Mike and I both did uh, K through five where our class sizes were like 15 to 20 people in our class. And also like nobody, like you can't swear. It's very strict. And then in sixth grade, I went to uh, public school for the first time. And I remember seeing these kids with like, you know, their skater shoes and they're like cussing, like, I'm going to beat your motherfucking ass, like all this stuff. And I go there, I'm like, holy, I'm like, shit, these kids, like I'm one bad, you know, eye contact away from just getting pummeled. Like these kids are tough, you know, in reality, looking back, it's like, yeah, they're a bunch of 12 year olds who thought they were being edgy by swearing, but none of them knew how to fight. (laughs) But so I never, I never got bullied in that way, but I was always terrified of it for like all through middle school. And then uh, my freshman year of high school, um, I, my friend Ryan, who's now a uh, pro Muay Thai fighter, um, invited me over to his house to play his UFC video game. And I'm like, oh, this is like cool. We're, and I got hooked on the video game. And then this is in 2009, there was a promo for UFC 100. 
And I, I remember just being like in awe of like some of the highlights. It was GSP versus Tiago Elvez, Brock Lesnar versus Frank Mir, um, Dan Henderson, Michael Bisping, just like a loaded card. And we watched that fight live with a bunch of friends. And then I was just hooked from then on. And then UFC 101 happened about a month later. And I watched BJ Penn fight Kenny Florian. And right away, I was just like in a trance, like just it just completely blown away by jujitsu, like watching BJ Penn take somebody down, take their back and choke them. Um, and I, I knew I wanted to get in on this. And at the time, there was still a stigma around uh, mixed martial arts. And I'm like, oh, there's there's no way my parents are going to let me train cage fighting, right? It's this barbaric thing. But I remember hearing Joe Rogan say that wrestling was like the best foundation for fighting or make that argument. So I'm like, okay, but they will let me wrestle. So I joined the wrestling team my sophomore year, wrestled three years, and then I graduated at my local MMA gym, um, No Joke MMA. And uh, the rest is okay, history. Uh, and I've just fallen, away, there, fallen in love with jujitsu and uh, competed. Okay, Nick, we, we did oh, break I saw up the there for there. just a second. Yeah, just so you know. So I think it was, you said you wrestled three years in high school. You started training. What year did you start training jujitsu? Uh, this would have been 2013. So I took about a, a year oh, off yeah. where I didn't do any jujitsu and then um, got back in. I, I went to uh, No Joke MMA, my, my local home gym, and started training. And then uh, right away, we didn't have like an actual instructor that was a black belt. It was still underdeveloped, our local BJJ community. So I did a lot of uh, you know, going out to 10th planet in Chicago and training under Josh Pacini and learning a lot of, uh, 10th planet trickery and also just watching a lot of YouTube, uh, you know, an Eddie Bravo's system. And, uh, and then, you know, I, I mentioned I had a, an instructor come here from Brazil that was a fourth degree black belt under Hoyler Gracie and, uh, learned under him for a couple of years. And then that's a whole can of worms it ended up not being a great guy. And, uh, then, you know, I just, I just kept training. So, you know, I just fell in love and, uh, never looked back. You know, what's interesting to me is the intersection of politics and jujitsu. I following Tom Woods on Twitter, I had, uh, seen where Dr. Asatar Bear is a very liberal, very liberal professor in California. And he recently made even Fox News for defending Joseph Stalin. He said <laughs> Joseph Stalin is one of the greatest leaders of the 20th century. And, you know, I mean, just absolutely wild uh, take. So I started checking this guy's Twitter out. And I was like, this is interesting. And just because I'm a maniac and I'm into, I guess, contrarian type stuff, I reached out to him. <laughs> and, and as of next Thursday, I think I'm going to interview him. Play Patrick. So just to hear his argument is, you know, I'm interested. I, I doubt I'm going to walk away from that thinking Joseph Stalin was great. Um, <laughs> my, my gut tells me I will not, but he also told me he trains jujitsu and has trained some judo too. So which is super random, but I, I think it's interesting when there's the, the people. Um, they, do you guys feel there's an intersection between certain sports? What type of people make a liberty minded Republican or libertarian? That's an interesting type of conversation. We've, we've talked about this a few times on our podcast because you do find a disproportionate amount of not, not even just, uh, libertarians and martial arts gyms, but just free thinkers in general, even if they don't identify as libertarian. And I think it's because the same personality type 
that is drawn to this kind of these kind of sports and they're willing to go into a gym that seems intimidating and go, come in as a complete stranger and then try to understand this art and and go deep into the concepts it shows that they have a brain that likes to look for like pattern recognition and really try to dig and dig at ideas until they, they strike oil. And uh, I think that explains the kind of crossover where you, you do find, and like you said, a lot of uh, left-wing intellectual types too, but I think it's that same, that same instinct that makes people want to study something that's kind of abstract uh, also bleeds over into their political ideas. Yeah. You know, I've, I've seen it. Uh, now the, the jujitsu thing is completely Nick's world. I've, I've never, I think I trained once, but it's after my son was born and I would love to do it once I have more time. Um, but I'm not big into it. Like Nick is, a, is very good at it. Um, but another parallel just like that, that I found was I didn't go to a four-year university. I, I went to a community college to be an aircraft mechanic. And when I did that, there was about 30 people in our class, but most of them were way older. There was like eight people in my class that were fresh out of high school like me. And six of us became staunch libertarians by the time we got done with the two-year program. And I've, I, and one of the guys is actually our co-host, Tyler. So he, we formed a podcast together 12 years later. Um, so I kind of racked my brain about how that happened. But I think a lot of that went back to the fact that we went, we did what we weren't supposed to do. We didn't get a college loan and go to university like 90% of our, our graduating class. So that alone kind of put us in our own little area where it's like, well, we didn't want to go that route. So now we're all kind of free thinking and like-minded. And then that kind of translates into everything else that on our, our takes on uh, cultural or economic type um, situations. So it, it, it kind of baffled me. And then Nick had the same experience in jujitsu and I'm like, there's got to be a personality type that's attracted to to the against the grain type stuff. Have you guys had much luck converting people to liberty movement? I personally, I guess I have, to be honest. Um, not always the people I expect to, but I have people that I train jujitsu with come up and say, hey, I enjoyed your Spike Cohen or Larry Sharp interview and, you know, shit like that. And nothing, you know like excites me more than that. Like, you know, I didn't know who he was before that or whatever. So occasionally I do. But for the most part, I think the majority of the country thinks that the libertarian uh, ideals are just boring. It's just boring. Yeah. Yeah. And, <laughs> and I think, yeah, big time. And that's another thing we, we've kind of been a common theme on our podcast is that idea and my fear, um, I know Michael Malice likes to uh, quote this a lot, but H.L. Mencken said that the average man does not want to be free. He simply wants to be safe. And I think that is a, a problem, and I think it's a human nature problem. And I think the idea that we could make half the country you know, good Austrian libertarians is, uh, is a foolish idea. I don't think that that's possible. Um, so I, I go back and forth on this. Um, I have had success talking to people in my personal life, not many, you know, not for the amount of effort I've put into it, you know, just a small handful. But uh, yeah, I think that when our ideas become more relevant, like I, I mentioned inflation earlier, I think when we have the most compelling answer to that question, then we stand to gain a lot of people. And, you know, like I said, I hope that the Mises caucus is successful in red pilling the masses. Um, I have my doubts just based on, you know, the, like we said, the, the nature of people, I think freedom is a scary message for a lot of people, but, uh, 
yeah, I mean, that's, that's kind of where I stand. I think people should try to talk to uh, people in their own personal lives. And the best way to do that isn't to try to be the smartest guy in the room. I think that what libertarians lack and need to get better at is being just, you know, upstanding, successful people that lead by example. And I think that's the way that we actually influence the culture. And it's not about saying, I told you so about, you know, whatever, whatever issue it is that people that, you know, libertarians care about. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, um, I think there's a huge opportunity to, uh, to go and, and try to convert Bernie boys. Cause there's so many of those guys who they watch their guy get screwed over by the establishment twice. Um, they know there's something off. They know there's something wrong with healthcare. They, they know there's something wrong with all these issues, but they just have the wrong solution. And throughout COVID, um, I got a good friend of mine who was a radical Bernie bro. Um, but, we we always have great insightful conversations. He's a very free thinking guy. But since the COVID breakout and all the lockdowns, like the the memes we send back and forth, the the phone calls we have, we we almost hardly ever disagree anymore. He's basically just like a left libertarian now. We might disagree on some. He might still think Medicare for all or something like that. But it's not even worth mentioning because we're so far from that stuff. But there are so many people like that that did not vote for Biden because they were Bernie bros and Bernie was their guy and they saw him get screwed over by the establishment. So I think a lot of those guys are lost right now and have nowhere to go. And we got to get them before they go to AOC and start trying to, trying to become a, you know, a worse version of the same thing. Um, to describe this, when it comes to spending, one of the, the interview points I, I reference and have referenced a couple of times is when Larry Sharp was on the Joe Rogan experience, did either of you see or hear that? Yeah, I believe so. Yeah. <laughs> At the moment, this is, Joe Rogan's not a libertarian, okay? I mean, he, he, I guess he doesn't even, I guess he voted for Joe Jorgensen, but when Larry Sharp dropped on him the brilliant idea of defunding the public schools, Rogan was just like, whoa, 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 whoa. Like, what the fuck? He, he completely <laughs> was not buying that. It looked like they almost got very tense. And into a little bit of an argument there. So it's all delivery. It's all messaging. But uh, um, for some people, I think the spending thing, the funding of the public schools, health care, you know, college. I mean, those are really the the hot button issues with a lot of what I would describe as more emotional uh, uh, people. Right. Yeah. 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 Rogan's definitely a populist on a lot of those type of issues. And, and he, he's also, you know, I got a lot of respect for Rogan. He's great. I've been listening to him for a long time, but he tends to whatever his guest is saying, he tends to fall in line with and he'll contradict himself one week into the next. But um, yeah, as far as I heard Michael Malice talk to him about public school teachers and Rogan said they're they're way underpaid. And Malice said, well, what should they get paid? And he goes a lot more. And Malice goes, you can't write a lot more on a check. How much should they be getting paid? <laughs> and it was one of those lines where it's like, exactly. Like, number one, I don't know any teachers living in poverty. I know a lot of teachers. Um, they get paid pretty damn well for not a lot of hours. I'm not trying to belittle the job. I'm sure it's challenging to keep that many kids in line. But you get a pretty big vacation every summer. Um my daughter has like four day weeks twice a month. It's getting comical. It's like they have every Friday off, like every other Friday. It's like, and then there's just so many holidays that randomly pop up every month. So it's like, if you actually sat down and did the hours for what you're making, like getting paid pretty damn well per hour. Um, and obviously when you get into bigger cities, the pay goes up double from where I'm at and they get paid pretty well here. So um, yeah, <laughs> it's kind of, kind of my little rant. Got in the weeds about it. 
No, I'm with you. I think a lot of the left narrative and the rhetoric is the idea that people can teachers because they're just better people. Right. They don't care about the, the money as much. They're just doing it because they're better people. And in reality, I don't think they should be ashamed of the fact that they're being teachers because it's a pretty good job. Yeah, that's for sure. Yeah, that's fucking. And there's that's fucking why, and that's not bad. They shouldn't be ashamed of that. But let's no. not kid ourselves. They're not better people than us. That's a lot of the left's narrative. I feel. Yeah, I know. And there's and there's teachers that are great people that they actually love teaching kids. Um, I mean, I had a, I had an English teacher that um he retired to become a, a school teacher because he was a, uh, a he worked for NASA and all kinds of crazy stuff. His life was like a movie. Had over seventy foster kids in his life. Then he retired to teach kids because he loved it. He was Mormon, by the way. Um, kind of explained some of it. Just a really great guy. Um, and like that guy obviously just loved teaching kids. I mean, he was probably in his late sixties. He could have already been retired, but yeah, to, to act like, um, you know, a lot of it isn't just, that's a harder job. I, I, I can't buy into, I think it's a, a very great job. I think they get treated very well, but the, the, in a private market, like it really comes down to just turnover. How, how hard is this job to fill? How many people are there waiting in line to take it if we had to get rid of this one person? And when you have it all in the public sector with the, with the teachers unions, where you can virtually almost not get fired unless you do something really terrible, um, it, it kind of re- creates a reverse incentive, you know, and, and um, the teachers get away with a lot more stuff that we've got to put up with, and especially going back to this critical race theory type stuff. I know, I know we circled back to the public education, very exciting topic of public education, which so many <laughs> listeners of the Kelly Patrick show are just excited as hell to hear about. You know, what's funny is a lot of people who listen to the Kelly Patrick show because follow local MMA in Kentucky and Ohio, they listen to hear the, the people they support. They just skip over these episodes for me. Right. Yeah, I could, I could see it. And you know, a lot of people really are just apolitical. And I think those are actually the people the, like, we're not going to, the, the goal isn't to win over leftists and make them good libertarians. I think the goal for, especially the Mises caucus is to take the politically apathetic and the apolitical people and try to inspire them to, to grab onto these ideas. So, uh, yeah, we're, we're never going to win over everybody, but I think it's about reaching those people that, you know, going into the last year, I mean, they probably start to care a little bit more because now politics it permeates every square inch of American life. So uh, I think that there's a huge opportunity in front of us. Are you guys doing okay on time? How are you? Yeah. Yeah. I'm okay for a bit more. Okay. One of the topics that I really like is Larry Sharp and his idea of reparations. Have you heard of this? Not in a while. I haven't, I remember you'd have to refresh my memory. So he acknowledges that, you know, black people have, in fact, been shit on in our country in the past, in the past, uh, not only, you know, slavery and the civil rights and everything like that. But then the Joe Biden uh, introduced crime bill that incarcerated many black fathers. Um, so to acknowledge that we could put together a system, Larry Sharp's idea, to where black owned businesses and individuals for I think it's a period of 22 to 20 three years based on his math could get a, a, a tax break. If you look at the overall tax pool, how much taxes African-Americans, they're only 13% of the population. But if you look at how much income taxes they actually pay, it's relatively, you know, in the grand scheme of things, relatively minimal. 
So for about 22 years, we could try to help African-American families build generational wealth, create businesses, and have tax breaks, like I think 50% of business taxes, uh, and then even some breaks on personal income taxes for 22 years. It's not going to be any type of a handout, no property, nothing given to the African-American community like that. Simply a little slight, slight incentive as far as uh, tax breaks, an incentive to build something that could possibly generationally help the African-American community. I may not have articulated it perfectly. Do you guys have thoughts on that? I, I am much more open-minded to that approach than I am of, uh, you know, taking existing tax money and, and giving it to people. Um, cause I think that would just build a sense of resentment and it would be completely counterproductive. And it also like people would just go out and spend it. And then, you know, what are they going to do? Buy stuff on Amazon and give the money right back to Jeff Bezos. I mean, you're, you're not talking about escaping that sort of, uh, generational, uh, lack of wealth. Um, I think that that is just a very temporary low time preference or sorry, high time preference solution. Um, but no, the idea of giving people like breaks if they're starting a business or just income tax breaks. I mean, Hey, I want us all to have those same tax breaks, but, uh, I'm not going to complain if, uh, you know, Dave Smith always, um, used this analogy and I thought it was great. He's like, if somebody else is, you know, getting away with not paying their taxes, you shouldn't hate on that person because of that, because it's like, if you're in prison and you know, the guards are beating on you and they're not beating on your cellmate as much. It's not like, well, Hey, I I want you to beat my cellmate the same amount as me. It's like, no, you should just want to be beaten by the guards less. Like you want everybody to be beaten the least amount possible. So, uh, that kind of idea, I think that is much better incentives and I would actually be completely okay with that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm pretty much with Nick. It's, um, obviously I, like Nick said, I'd rather, I mean, nobody pay into it, but, um, and I, I'm not a big fan of making any policy around race, but you know, that is a much preferable solution than, than a lot of these other, um, handouts and, and, and reparations and, you know, uh, taxpayer funded handouts. Um, especially when you just think about the level of bureaucracy and how many people need to be employed to handle all the paperwork and they get pensions. It's just, it bloats the whole thing. And it, it like I said, it's just, they're a, they're a parasite on, on the, on the free market. So I think, uh, speaking regard to the government, not, <laughs> not black business owners, hope that's clear. Um, yeah. but, uh, <laughs> no, I, I, I totally would support that. I think that's great to, especially people that have a, a harder, um, you know, less to work with and had a harder upbringing, like give them, yeah, take, give them less barriers to entry. Like it shouldn't be that hard. That's the, the root of it would be, for example, I also, my father is a, a business owner. My grandfather started a, a business in 1968. I work full time for that business now. Um, and I'm fortunate that I do. Right. So statistically guys, I sounds like I'm just trying to shit on the left, but guys like Joe Biden, unfortunately contributed to the war on drugs, which we haven't gotten to, but which has incarcerated many African-American males in our country. And the disintegration of the the African-American family has been gaining traction. It's happened for many generations now, which sucks, but something like this could possibly help. And Larry Sharp also points out, which I love every time in history, when you give handouts, whether it be welfare uh, free college, um, uh, you know, free, 
anything, any, any universal basic income, anything like that, uh, food stamps, whatever it is, the, the, the pool of people who are dependent on those handouts always grows. There's no case where that actually helps those people to lift themselves out of poverty, which is so important. We want everyone to prosper. We want everyone to have equal opportunity to prosper in a perfect world. But the, the ultimate idea for everyone is to give them the, the chances to be self-sustainable and to earn for themselves and, if possible, maybe pass on pass something on generationally and, and to prosper. Thoughts on that? Uh, yeah, absolutely. I think that's what it's all about is uh, people coming from strong families. I think that having a strong family unit is what creates successful people. I think that's what creates successful families and generations. And uh, I think that our entire system of incentives, when we look at our, our you know managerial economic welfare state, uh, is the exact wrong prescription. I think you, you incentivize people to not work, especially with all the COVID um, enhanced unemployment and the stimulus and everything. Uh, you're, you're encouraging people to spend in the moment to not save money because that money is losing purchasing power sitting over time. And if people want to return on that savings, they're putting it in the stock market and then it's, you're creating a bubble and a lot of risk tolerance. And, uh, yeah, the idea of, of having incentives that actually create long-term prosperity is where we need to move. So I'm, I'm completely with you on that. Yeah, no, I, I pretty much agree with everything Nick just said. So that's, uh, uh, don't want to reiterate too much, but yeah, I can, uh, I can get behind that. No problem. I hate to focus so much on race. I really do. Um, Same. But I, yeah, I, I, you know, but I'm interested. I I'm, I'm like, I, I like this conversation. Don't get me wrong. It's just, it, it sucks. Like, I don't want to have to to dwell on it, but it is a very relevant thing. So I, I completely right. get why we're talking about it. Yeah. You know, I have many African-American guests on the podcast and I've explained that system of reparations to them. And if I sit down and actually get their ear, they're like, oh, that does make sense. Larry Sharp uh, explained it on air to my buddy Avery, who's a big Bernie and AOC supporter. And Larry Sharp put it in a way where he's like, well, if the more that we give uh, certain opportunities, the more dependent on government they are, and they always have been, no reason to think that'll change anytime soon. So how about we help to, to grow and to uh, at least put type effort into that? Once again, I hate the emphasis solely on race, but I, I do think it's something that, man, the left is so smart. The left is br- fucking brilliant. This whole racial thing is, I mean, you couldn't draw up something to be divisive um, in our country, that would be more effective than this that I could think of. Have you ever seen, um, there's an old 1948, uh, cartoon called make mine freedom. I don't think so. No, it, it's on YouTube. It's about 10 minutes long. It's, it's really well done. And the, the premise is, is it's all, um, story of how capitalism works. And it shows kind of a cartoon version of Henry Ford, you know, building a car in his garage and showing how that goes into manufacturing and how the standard of living rises. Cause everyone now gets a car because this guy was allowed to think or think and, uh, pool his own capital and, and fund it, et cetera. And then it shows this snake oil salesman coming into a park with this magical elixir called ism. And it's supposed to be socialism, communism. And he's saying like, ism will make the weather better. Uh, sorry, for, for my feed, at least, I couldn't hear you there for a moment. You said, okay, so he, he, could you continue back about 30 seconds? 
Okay, so there's a snake oil salesman at a at a park, and he has a bottle called Ism, and it's basically communism socialism. He's saying it'll it'll make your wages better, it'll make you healthier, it'll make the weather better. Like all you gotta do is sign here, and there's a fine contract saying I sign over my freedom, my children's freedom, and my children's children's freedom in exchange for Ism. And it goes into this whole dystopia where they take a sip and the state runs everything and they're not allowed to speak and they're getting treated like numbers. And it's just, they, they saw World War II, so they're, they're warning kids in our country what happens. And at the end of it, the narrator says, anytime somebody tries to divide you religiously, racially, class-wise, they seek to take away everything you have and all of your freedom. And this is from 1948. And, and I've I rewatched it recently and we, we put it on our podcast and it is, it, it shows the Black Lives Matter and Antifa playbook to a T. And this was, you know, almost 70 years ago. Sounds very relevant to today. I mean, what, what, what more of a Bolshevik or uh, uh, divisive strategy, if you're going to try to pit a certain group of the community against another, you got to come up with something. This is, I yeah. guess, I don't know if it's neo-Marxism or whatever the the terminology would be, but I'd say that's very relevant today. Once again, I, I say this shit over and over again. I do hate that we have to talk about race so much, but I do think the idea, Spike Cohen and Joe Jorgensen, I think in some ways, in some ways, the fact that Joe Jorgensen was attending Black Lives Matter protests, in some ways, was brilliant. I think a couple of the tweets were really dumb. And yes, they were catering to too much of that left libertarian uh, uh, crowd, uh, the, you know, the uh, identity, complete identity politics. But they did have a little bit of a, a degree of. Hey, Kelly, you're cutting out a little bit there. Um, oh, I'm sorry. No, no, you're good. Um, but you said, I mean, basically you're saying that Spike and, uh, and Joe Jorgensen there, there was some value in, in what they were preaching. I, and I, I, I agree. My, I, I agree to to yeah. I got my mom to vote for them and she's, she's a de- life Democrat. She's never voted Republican that I know of. And I got a couple other people that I vote for them. I still think they're 100% better Spike and Joe. Or, or Joe and Spike are 100% better than any Democrat, probably even better than, really, certainly on spending. I mean, you fucking kidding me, Nick? Uh, uh, they, they would definitely be better yeah. on spending. <laughs> yeah, no, sure. no, I, I agree with you that there is some value that, you know, libertarians should be reaching out to those communities. I think that we need to take whatever populism exists, um, which there is currently happening on the left and right. The right is very much like this kind of protectionist policy about the American economy and everything. And on the left, you have calls for, you know, racial equality and, and income equality and all of these things. And I think that if we can sort of be a little subversive and get our ideas in there, then that could be powerful too. I mean, if people like people will join a cause that they don't fully understand, but they feel an emotional attachment to it. And I think that the BLM protests of the last year is a perfect example of that. And I, I, to an extent, I like what Spike and Joe did where they were attempting to reach out to that community. I think that's a good idea. Um, I completely separating them from the actual ideological Marxists that are sort of heading up the entire movement and the organization. Um, so yeah, I, I think there is utility in reaching out. 
Great stuff. Well, guys, I really appreciate your time. Before we wrap things up, would you guys like to give, I don't know, social media shout out or, you know, anything uh, before we wrap things up that you would, either of you would like to touch on? Um, I mean, you can find us on Twitter at Pulse to the Walls with a Z at the end. And uh, the podcast is just Pulse to the Wall. If you search it on any major podcast platform, you'll find us there. Yeah. And um, we'll also be at Freedom Fest in Rapid City, South Dakota. July 2th. Um, that's going to be a great event. Dave Smith is hosting it. Um, I know a lot of other big podcasts are going to be there. A lot of big speakers. Tom Woods. There's like 200 people there with a lot of huge A-list uh, libertarian names. I love it. Well, guys, thank you very much for coming on the Kelly Patrick Show. I hope to chat with you again sometime soon. Nick and Mike, guys, have a great rest of your weekend. Thank you. You too, Kelly. Thank, thank you. you.